kindly asked a question which I presume is supposed to be in contradiction to what I said in the last talk. The question is, did not Jesus say, unless you become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven? What did he mean by this? Well, I think if you looked up the context, I, I haven't done it myself, but I'm pretty sure the, the apostles had just been having a row as to who was the greatest and on a walk. And our Lord met them and said, what are you talking about? And they all blushed. So then he put a little boy in the middle and kissed him. And then in order to get rid of their middle-aged conceits and this arguing about who is the greatest, he suggested that, that they should get, become like a little child, which means to say, without conceit and obedience. But I don't think it implies from that that we've all got to become childish again and go to bed, have a hula hoop, and go to put our dollies to bed. Now, I think St. Paul and our Lord's words really are complementary to each other. As you get older and feel more, feel more important, you need to have the spirit of a little child in the way of humility, but our Lord hardly asked middle-aged men to become brats. Now, I thought at the, uh, for the last two talks, I'm sorry it's been so wet for you, it happened every Sunday that I've been here. I keep on hearing jokes about the English weather, uh, but they're not so funny now uh, since I've been here. But uh, we haven't been too bad, we've had two good days, and it's going to be lovely in a minute. I wanted now to talk only about a book that Cardinal Newman wrote. One of the most sensational caused a great stir and has a very pertinent business for us today. It hasn't got a text, but I would like to take one of those two slogans that his schoolmaster taught him when he was young and which he followed through all his life. One of them was holiness rather than peace, and we thought of holiness throughout the retreat, the frame of mind which will decide what we're like. And the other one was, growth is the only evidence of life. Those two phrases from Mr. Scott um, affected Newman all the time. Many of his sermons developed that theme. The book I want to speak about is the one that is very pertinent to me because he wrote it where I, just next door to where I now live. In three days' time, I'll be back in the room next to him. And that's where he had his great reading desk and where he wrote Standing Up, the last book he wrote as a Protestant. Indeed, he became a Catholic just before he wrote the last paragraph. And it was called Essay on the Development of Doctrine. It took him about three years to write, and it was what he clarified his own thoughts in order to make this great decision which cost him so much. So therefore, I thought I'd speak about it. When I arrived at my little house about two months ago for the first time, I found a registered parcel waiting for me, and inside a bookseller who I didn't then know, an old man who'd been in the book trade all his life, sent me a book and had a letter in it saying, Dear Father, I hear you're coming into this room. And he said, it's always been my ambition to send a book back to the place where it was born. And he sent me the first edition of the development of doctrine, which I have open in my room um, at the place where Newman became a Catholic. Now, the development of doctrine, which took, was written about 40 years before Darwin, 
caused a tremendous sensation. It changes our whole attitude to the church uh, because Newman had this extraordinary idea uh, that doctrine develops like a seed in the ground, that it's not static. One of you did ask me in the retreat why Newman retired from uh, the being secretary of the Bible Society. He did that long before he became a Catholic, but when he began to read the Fathers, he didn't like the idea that the Bible was bound on both sides in leather, that that didn't develop and was the whole story. That the living voice of the church really decides what the church holds, and the Bible, like the code of behavior, uh, goes with it. And so therefore, Revelation supports what was handed down by the apostles. Well, I'll only do the first part quickly, because it's a big book. And very, but the second part is marvelous, the actual development in the church. It may interest you, some of you who like, it's a wonderful book to read. The first thing that Newman suggests is that if, if we take that candlestick there, if we all look at it, you, then you get an idea in your head. All our ideas may be different, but that, that candlestick eventually is transferred to my brain, the shape of it and all its aspects. And Newman says, the mind works like this. No sooner do we apprehend than we judge. We allow nothing to stand by itself. We compare, we contrast, we abstract, we generalize, connect, adjust, classify. And view, and you, and we view all our knowledge in the associations which this object presents to my mind. So just like a computer, when we think, we take some idea or some object outside and we sift it out and then thought begins from there. We first of all assign it to a pigeonhole. Then he goes on to say that very often most things we look at, like that candlestick, uh, then we suddenly, it's only an opinion we have about it, it's trivial and we toss it aside. So that um, it, not everything you think about comes to fruition. It's simply an opinion. But some ideas, for some strange reason, become leading ideas. And he gives us an example of the, in Christianity. Supposing I say to you the word Christianity, then you can think of it in quite a lot of different ways. You can think of it as the restoration of our fallen race, the sin of Adam having been wiped out by Christ. You can think of it of Christian charity, philanthropy, and helping the poor, like Mother Teresa. You can think of it to do with spirituality, which is true, like St. Teresa of Avila and the great mystics. And you can think of it as giving us salvation and, you can, and the union of the soul with God. There are two self-evident luminous beings. All those and many other views would be right. Newman suggests that when you say Christianity, the real thing, the central thought is that uh, the son of the second person of the Blessed Trinity became a man. He would suggest that's his idea. You're not bound to follow that. But then as he goes on to say, the leading ideas, some of them pass on to be living ideas. Certain ideas live, and other ideas, like arithmetic, are true, but you don't think about them or develop them very much further than Euclid did. But there are ideas which can move my mind and your mind and somebody else's mind, and you get a tremendous spread right across history. 
history can be changed by one idea. And so he gives us an example, a very good ones, I think. He would say, of, of living ideas, free, free trade. Thousands of people today are involved, and you get it on radio and television and Wall Street programs, about free trade or the common market. The whole of Europe is still arguing and bellyaching, and everybody's got their views. Just the word common market is a, is a living idea which can affect and influence policy and can influence history in extraordinary wide variety of ways you look at it. He takes, for example, the divine right of kings, because right back from the days of Darius and right back to Alexander the Great and all the Roman emperors and the monarchies in every country that God appointed them. And the opposite in the case of George Washington, who threw George III out. That the divine right of kings for and against is an enormous subject for ideas. And so you have a whole string of these ideas which we can have. The rights of man is another. Uh, I would say racialism is one. There are hundreds of them. And then we get this central one that Newman says, therefore, that when you think of Christianity, eventually you begin to understand it all turns on God becoming a man. The real God that we've thought about, not being a vice president, not subject to God the Father, but equal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that is the key to the whole thing. Now, Newman says, when you get to that stage, well, then an idea begins to germinate, like a seed. And it reaches a certain point of maturity, and then it begins to develop, just as a seed is put into the ground. And he's very keen because our Lord, all our Lord's parables practically about the church were concerned with seeds, with the sower going out, with the weeds coming up, with the mustard seed. Our Lord constantly used the cockle and the wheat. Our Lord constantly used the idea of a seed bursting and growing. And so he wants to say, and he rightly says, that doctrine will grow over the centuries and will develop, keeping certain rules. Now, he was very worried because when he was young, he'd seen what he thought were corruptions in the Catholic Church. Devotion to Mary, purgatory, relics, things that he thought in his Protestant days were impeding the glory of God. A great number of those churches in North Carolina, the uh, vicar or rector or whoever he is, would take the same line, that these are Roman corruptions. Now, Newman found it necessary then, reading history, to settle down and decide what makes a corruption, what makes a plant go wrong, or what makes it go right. And he put down six conditions whereby a thing is either corrupt or is growing correctly. And I won't give you them all, because, um, but one or two are very good. First of all, he says that any development must be, any development must be a preservation of type. That's to say, you can't put a plant in and then suddenly get thistles coming off, or pick grapes off a thistle, as our Lord said. That if you put a thistle in the ground, as it grows, it must continue to be a thistle. I think all of us would concede that. It's not a corruption, therefore, if a seed develops or a doctrine develops, provided it is true to type. And it's got to have a continuity of principles, namely, that you wouldn't expect 
suddenly an apple tree to get the apples first and the leaves second. You'd certainly go and see a gardener about that. And then, most important, assimilation. A plant will die if it doesn't draw from the soil around it chemicals, etc., which it hasn't got itself. After all, when we put down peace, or whatever it is, and all these various manures that are uh, forked into the ground, we want the roots to assimilate them and to bring in from outside things that the plant itself needs but hasn't got. And then last, two other things he has, that at certain times in the growth of a plant you have to prune it and you cut suckers off because they're weakening the plot, they're making the whole plant go wild again. If you suddenly get a wild rose coming out from a root, you'd, you're really destroying the rose if you don't cut it off. And on the other hand, when you've pruned it, it's still got to have enough vitality to start again. I was once giving a mission at Beaconsfield and a, the pastor had just bought himself a hedge cutter. He was still standing up cutting the top of the hedge when I went out for a walk. When I got back, he was on his knees. He'd cut the whole damn thing away. <laughs> he was trimming about two little sticks to the bottom. <laughs> how, e how easy it is to do that. And therefore, if you want to change the thing, you must do it according to uh, plant life. You must cut it back if it gets too thick and too bushy. And at the same time, you must be able um, to leave it the vitality to start again. Now, those are the laws he made. And with that, he did a marvelous thing of taking the history of the church right back from the very time when St. Peter and the others received the Holy Spirit. His first chapter was the church of the first two centuries, where he put down what they believed in the Eucharist, what they believed in this, and you suddenly saw it had developed. As he pointed out in the Acts of the Apostles, there was an immense development after Pentecost. When the Holy Ghost came down on the Apostles, nobody ever thought of receiving Gentiles into the church. The Jews wouldn't touch the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit at Pentecost didn't say anything about it. But suddenly the church developed after our Lord had gone to heaven. It began to develop and suddenly there were more Gentiles in the church than Jews. Again, from the breaking of bread, which is the only word we get in the gospel, in the, when the two disciples went to Emmaus, gradually St. Justin and all the doctors of the early church described their mass at, in, at night and how the catechumens weren't allowed in. They had their whole arrangement, and you suddenly see the mass developing. And what's more, animal sacrifices vanishing. They, they went. You suddenly find also that where previously they had not had Christian charity, they weren't Christians till the Holy Ghost came, and then you suddenly got St. Paul and others collecting money for the poor. All these things happened quite without being trumpeted till you suddenly look back after 200 years and you find the plant growing and changing. A very interesting thing, of course, is confession. One of you asked me about it. And we know very well that in confession, uh, first of all, they had hardly ever mentioned confession for the first 70 years. Why? Because all the converts were adults. They were all baptized, knowing exactly what they were doing. And it was thought in the early years, rather optimistically, that once you were baptized, you would never commit a sin again. So they didn't bother about confession. No, but then suddenly the persecutions came, 
And then, all of a sudden, a new thing came in the church, namely that people lapsed. Thousands were died. It was marvellous heroism for 261 years. But quite a number uh, offered sacrifice to the gods to keep their money. What was to happen suddenly when the persecution ended were these people to be brought back? Now, it's sad that the heretics of the time, they all said, no, these chaps can't come back. But the church said, again, continuity from our Lord in the gospel, yes, they can come back. The Orthodox Church sponsored confession for those now who needed it. So confession itself came in. But then after that, confession was always in public. And you all did your penances in public, and you shouted your sins out in public. And it worked for a time, but then they all found it was becoming an hypocrisy, that people were making up sins and uh, sort of having a whale of a time. It was like a sort of music, a, a, a show on the telly. All the sins people confessed in public. And it was the Irish who, uh, the Irish monks who said, Let, why not have a confessional box? Uh, because then when a person's by themselves, they'll be more honest. At least there was a chance of it. In Spain, they still have some of these public uh, penitential services. And on Holy Week, in all the old towns like Seville, they have a little, little section in each procession for the adulterers. They all wear hoods like the Ku Klux Klan. So you can only see their eyes and have a guess of what they've been up to. And then they were... I don't think they are. I think they're Knights, Knights of Columbus, if you looked inside. <laughs> and they were... They wear robes, and they have a bottle of sherry, and they have a swig every minute. Every, every two minutes, they have a booze up as they go along. And they're the, they're the attraction of the whole procession. I can quite see why the Irish called a halt to it. <laughs> but it's interesting to see how this developed. So Newman has to say, you know, what was a corruption, what wasn't? He points out one corruption that he... he it's only his view, but it's a very interesting one. When the emperor became a Catholic, Constantine, um, he had a vision and saw the cross in the sky and heard the words, in this sign you will conquer. So Constantine, in the first burst of enthusiasm, had a cross put on the shields of all the Byzantine guards. And that led to the Crusades, little by little. Over two or three hundred years, you, they suddenly found that we were take, having sort of paratroopers and things going off to bash up all the pagans. And, and although they were well-meaning, and some of them had vows in religion, like the knights from Malta, uh, yet Newman says that was a retrograde step that should have been stopped. It is stopped now. Because there, the church wasn't continuous. The church was never founded to fight wars like the Crusades. But it came in and caused scandal and great sin. So it's interesting to see how confession developed. And then, of course, you get, get again the thing people say, well, there was no pope in those days. All those ministers in North Carolina would say that. But the silly part is they didn't need a pope when St. Peter was walking around, because he was the pope. They didn't even... They called him Peter, I suppose, and, and they just asked him without... But when he died, then the next need were bishops. They came first, because Alexandria and Antioch, the church spread slowly, like a plant, and then somebody had to be in charge when Paul and the others had gone on or died. So the bishops are all the time mentioned, and the Pope living in Rome, as he was, that all the early popes are buried in Rome, uh, they were only heard of. They hadn't got uh, your lovely eyewitness news every night to find out what the heck was happening. 
So the bishop was the man who ran the whole show. Well, Newman takes the church every 200 years right down to his own time. And that's what he had to say, the devotion to our Blessed Mother, which he thought a corruption at that time, that when our Lord was proclaimed to be the Word, God, God from God, light from light, the moment the council defined that, then Mary suddenly became all important. She was the mother of the God-made man. And so, by worshipping her and praying to her, she's only a creature, but her position suddenly became right in theology. So he went right the way down through the centuries, showing the growth of the church and how doctrines changed. So he makes a very good remark. No doctrine that we hold today was held like that at the beginning. Because doctrines grow when there's a heresy. Then they have a debate about it and some hard feelings and they have a heresy spread. And then the church has to pull itself together and say, now this is what the apostles always taught. That's what Newman himself did. He came over to the church, following the fathers of the church step by step. He goes right down to the 18th and 19th century. And you see some things that have gone out, but all the time there's a period of pruning, and there's a period where sudden growth, and there is this, th the plant must be true to type, you must be able to say, this has evolved from what the apostle said. Now, this is important for us today, and I would end on that particular note, because today the changes in the church have caused us terrible trouble. Last week, when there was a retreat the size of yours, there were four or five people, you could tell, and you meet them everywhere, who are terribly upset about the church changing. It's a real pain to them. I know an old priest who stopped saying mass. He's just too old to be bothered with a missalette. I don't blame him for that. The missalette is enough to drive you crackers. But uh, the odd thing is, uh, it's sad when a man has to give up. But I've got other people that were on the here, uh, things like confession, whether we could go to confession in public or private. These things we've got to accept. It takes a thumping long time for a plant to develop. This was the mistake of the early Christians. If they made any mistake, it was they thought our Lord was coming back again while they were still alive. They all did. They were so excited after the resurrection that they began to get ready, pack their bags for purgatory. Though they hadn't heard of purgatory then, that's come later. But it was very sad, St Paul himself and some of the apostles fell into that. And then Paul had to write to the Thessalonians who packed up all work. They were very advanced trade unionists. They simply stopped working altogether to get ready for the last day. And St Paul had to write to them and say that if a man doesn't work, he can't eat. There was a complete blunder. And so when we get the changes in the church, we get so het up about them. Oh, I've seen such comical things happen. There's one old lady in England who can't stand shaking hands at the Agnes Day. Well, nor can I, but uh, I can't say that. She's furious, and on Sundays, she always sits in the side aisle behind a pillar so as that nobody can reach her. <laughs> but she's got, there's another old lady on, who loves, to, uh, loves shaking hands and is what more determined to get this dirty old thing to keep him with the liturgy. So she rushes across and, the, and there's a sort of battle royal behind a pillar. <laughs> Talk about being mature Christians. We have one parish in England where they brought in the word, I mean, like you did, I don't know why, at the council, responsorial psalm. The silliest word I've ever heard, but it came in. Well, about 10, 
Five years ago, a Benedictine monk, quite rightly, said that it's silly to say responsorial psalm. All psalms are responsorial. So he tried to cut it out again. And you ought to hear the congregation, how he was chopping and changing the liturgy, and they were all up in arms. They hated it being put in, and five years later, they hate to have it taken out. You get... People are so perverse about changes. Now, I was at the council for one session. I wasn't a holy doctor. I was in Vatican Radio. But I met a lot of the bishops, and I saw with my own eyes what I can only tell you. The bishops at the council were the, quite the holiest set of people you ever saw. They were terribly sincere. Most of them were up at five in the morning making the holy hour every day before the council began. They weren't sort of knockabouts wanting to change the church. Indeed, every one of them had an Irish grandmother, as far as I could see. <laughs> In fact, most of them didn't want any changes at all, but then the changes were forced on them. The previous council, there'd only been 400 bishops present. Why? Because there wasn't air travel. The last council, there were 4,000, at least. Australia and New Zealand and Fiji and God knows where, they'd never been to a council ever. You couldn't get there. Only four Americans, I think, managed on the Cunardas or something to get across to Vatican Council I. Now, suddenly, the Universal Church poured in. As I put in my book, the first thing they did is they ran, they ran short of coat hangers. They hadn't got enough hangers for all the American jackets. I saw Cardinal Gracious having a free fight with a man, both pulling at his cotter, which was lying on the floor. I don't know what he was doing. But then they, when they all voted with the electric voting machine, when they pressed the button the first time, all the lights fused. <laughs> it wasn't wired properly, because they never had so many votes. So in a marvellous way, you suddenly saw the whole church there. But then you see what was extraordinary was, when they began to discuss the liturgy to start with, the question of Latin came up. And it's hypocrisy today for you and me to go on belly aching like some of these Latin mass people, um, how disgraceful to change. The church didn't want to change from Latin. It hasn't changed. It's the universities that have changed, especially the American universities. In the old days, practically everybody who went to the university learned Latin. About 30 years ago, Latin was wiped out almost entirely. And I heard bishops from Japan and places like that, South Africa, saying that if you insist on Latin, there'll be no priests. It's not fair on a man to make him learn four, five years, six years of Latin, um, which he's never heard of, the Romans never went to Japan, to suddenly impose this on him, especially when the universities over here and in my own country, except Oxford, Latin's gone. So you suddenly realise that the church was faced with a new development. And there's nothing in the church that shows that Latin is the language, because Greek was the language for the first uh, four or five hundred years. Obviously, you can change the, the language. It's a nuisance. I miss Latin very much myself. Many of you do. But if you're, a, if you're a Catholic and are proud of the church, you simply have to say this has happened. Then a terrific puffing and blowing went on because fish on Friday was abolished. But there again, a third of the world is travelling every day. You go to all the airports, it's hell to have fish in Chicago any day. <laughs> I mean, in none of these wimpy bars, the fish isn't worth eating. No, if you're in New Orleans, they still have fish every day. But if you're in places where you can't get fish, 
Or if you're traveling at airports, as they are. I said mass at London Airport once on All Saints Day, and I had about 500 people at mass. Why? Because about three airplanes had come in from the Philippines with all Roman Catholics on board. In the old days, you just went to your parish church. So the church didn't abolish fasting and things, but they had to try and adjust. And Newman was so good on that because you don't like change, you don't want change. Some changes are bad, and then we have to allow and prune the thing. But there again, if I've got no authority, then I should shut up. If I'm a pastor, or if I'm a Knight of Columbus, or a church warden, or a friend of the bishop, then I should drop a hint to the bishop. But on the whole, to get ourselves all miserable and rushing around, and all the time having grievances, it seems so very sad. I found Newman's development of doctrine thrilling. And there's one last development which he didn't know, poor Cardinal Newman, that's devotion to the Sacred Heart. Devotion to the Sacred Heart only came in when St. Francis Assisi had the stigmata. He was the first man who had the wounds of our Lord on his body. Funny enough, after his time, a whole lot of nuns got it. I never understand that. I mean, that's a bit charismatic. But at any rate, when a St. Francis, who so loved our Lord, got the stigmata, then a devotion started to the five wounds. And in England, when Henry VIII uh, tried to uh, shut the church, the pilgrimage of grace of all the devout Catholics from the north, they carried a banner with the five wounds, was their rallying banner. They were all killed and defeated. Then they decided, uh, just by custom, that they would have the central wound that pierced our Lord's heart. So devotion to the wound in our Lord's heart came in in about 1600. Then an extraordinary thing happens. A Dr. Harvey, a very distinguished man of the early 17th century, he discovered the circulation of the blood. Up to then, they thought that the, that the heart was full of vapors and things. They, Shakespeare and all those people, they had no idea what the heart was doing. This the symbol of love. Harvey showed that the blood was whizzing around inside. You get blood pressure and all the rest. Immediately he, he did that, Pascal, the great Frenchman wrote up a book on the heart about love. And St. John Hughes, at the same time, founded an order of the Sacred Heart in about 1640. And eight years later, St. Margaret Mary had all her visions of the Sacred Heart of Parilimonio. And so suddenly, devotion to the Sacred Heart came in. And it, it went a bit strange at one time. Margaret Mary, if you please, wrote to the King of France and said that our Lord had ordered her to ask him to put the Sacred Heart on the national flag. Luckily, he was so busy with his mistresses, he didn't do anything about it. Because <laughs> we would have been awkward having the Sacred Heart flag on the trickler today. I don't know, especially with Mr. Mitterrand as president. <laughs> Luckily, the church didn't do it. And then the devotion to the Sacred Heart became marvelous in the French Revolution. The two great saints, the foundresses of Notre Dame, um, St. Julie B.R. and St. Madeleine Sophie Barrard, the founders of the Sacred Heart Order, they would live through the French Revolution. And the Christians, especially in Brittany, the little badge was a rallying point uh, in secret, rather like the resistance to Hitler in the last war. Well, that went all right. And then Dr. Barnard of South Africa suddenly transplanted a heart. So now our Lord's lost his heart, bang, gives a sacred heart. You can have a plastic one made in Cleveland. 
And yet the funny thing is it hasn't changed at all because if the chest looks back, the doctrine of the Sacred Heart is that our Lord presented his heart as an apt sign of his love for us. So therefore, now with Freud and things, the heart is much further inside. So you see a development weaving along, and the odd thing is, we're really, it's the same thing, but you, we have to check it. And that's why we shouldn't be in a hurry in the church. People get so worried and angry when things aren't done at once, they're making the same mistake as the pagans. They thought of religion as only lasting 70 years of their life, that the church is going to go on forever. And that's why, if you want to be in a hurry, you're like St. Peter wanting to build those three tents and then find the visions over. That's why I find the church goes slowly. We're going to get many changes in the church in the next years, where priests get fewer, where you're going to have confession will change completely, and then again, we've got the space age. I suppose there'll be a Jesuit college on Mars one day, I don't know. But you, we have to be, whatever, whatever stage we're in, uh, the seed will grow. So I'll end on that note. Um, Cardinal Newman, at the very end, of his book, he wrote down the author is now becoming a Roman Catholic. And the only comment he made was that he had, when he became a Catholic, he had nothing new to learn. All it felt like was that he was like a ship coming into a safe harbor from a rough sea. And then he sent his book to the Cardinal of Westminster to have it imprimatur, and Cardinal Wiseman said, no, you wrote it in the Church of England, and so we, you shouldn't have it um, in any way censored by us. So the great last book he wrote in the, church, in the Episcopalian Church came out under his own flag.